Welcome to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. All over Georgia this weekend, there is football happening, fall festivals, apple picking, and a wonderful celebration of a native son of Georgia. Former President Jimmy Carter turns 99 years old on October 1st, and the Carter Center is celebrating in a very special way. They have been asking Georgians to share birthday messages with Carter. People from all over the world, though, have been submitting photos of things like the times that they attended a Sunday school class he was teaching at his church. There are also lots of pictures of families and kids and dogs. Nancy in Houston has her picture in the mosaic, and she writes, Thank you for all you do. Your life of service has meant so much to so many. You are truly a role model for all people on earth. Elvis R. sent a picture of himself with a heart. He lives in the Philippines. Graduation pictures, wedding pictures, the sinner's prayer, all of it is there. And all of these pictures are shaped into a mosaic of Carter's profile. Carter is known for so many things. Perhaps the most important, though, is his faith. President Jimmy Carter loves the Lord. At Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, his home church, a wooden cross hangs in the sanctuary, a cross that he himself crafted. He also made the offering plates, which have his initials carved into the bottoms of them. Here he is in a 2018 interview with Mena Mawara, an evangelical minister and writer who asked Carter what he would want God to say to him when he gets to heaven. Well, I, I hope God would say that I'm uh, a sincere evangelical measured in his own standards. Mm-hmm. I hope he would say that I promoted peace because we worship the Prince of Peace. I hope that God would say that in my own life and, and in my public life as president and so forth, that I promoted basic human rights, that is the equality among people and treating everybody fairly. Uh, and, and I hope I'll be able to thank God for the many blessings that he's given to me. While Carter's love of the Lord is simple, his relationship with the Southern Baptist Church and evangelicals, that has been a complicated journey. In October of 2000, Carter, a third-generation Southern Baptist, left the Southern Baptist Convention. In a letter to the convention at that time, Carter said, quote, some of the group's positions, including decisions that bar female pastors and declaring that wives should submit graciously to their husbands, violate the basic premises of his Christian faith. For some thoughts on Carter and his complicated relationship with the church, I recently spoke with the Reverend Dr. David Gushy. He is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University, among many accomplishments. He's also the author of the book, After Evangelicalism. He says the Southern Baptist Convention went through some big changes in the 80s. The Southern Baptist Convention leadership was taken over by a very hardline conservative group and they narrowed the parameters of belief by writing a new doctrinal statement. And one of the pieces of the doctrinal statement that was called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 was that women could no longer uh, be um, called as pastors. It also included that infamous line about uh, that, you know, God's design is that women should graciously submit to men. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was a kind of a last straw, I think, for President Carter and for a lot of people. Um, so he said, I'm done with Southern Baptists. This does not represent my views. But ironically, uh, like a lot of other uh, Southern Baptist churches, uh, his, his own church did not leave the Southern Baptist Convention. 
They just added an affiliation with a new group that was born called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And this group affirms women in ministry. So what do you think President Carter's legacy will be on the Southern Baptist Church when people look back on on, uh, his life and remember uh, his faith, which he's so connected to? I think he's an early symbol of the Southern Baptist Convention alienating some of its own best people by its turn to the far right. Um, Jimmy Carter was a loyal Southern Baptist. When when America first met him in 1975, 76, when he was running for president, everybody thought of him as a Southern Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. He, um, he really presented himself as a born-again Christian Southern Baptist, and he was that. Um, it wasn't that he changed. It was that the Southern Baptist Convention narrowed its understanding of both religion and politics in such a way that it drove out everybody who was not a hard right winger, really. And and so he symbolizes what has been lost by the Southern Baptist Convention. But I would also say he has helped to symbolize the Christian vitality that is still out there outside outside of the hard right wing. There's plenty of faithful Christians who don't identify either as Southern Baptists or as evangelicals anymore, but they still they love God and they go to church and they try to live good lives and obey the teachings of Jesus, and and some of them, you know, are actually Democrats, and that's okay. You can be a Democrat and a Christian, you know, all of that. So you know, it's a shocking development uh, <laughs> right. for some people, right? right. Um, so his life of, of personal integrity and lived-out devotion to Jesus, um, people see that, and over the long post-presidency where year after year he— he practiced his faith in you know ways like Habitat for Humanity and the Carter Center and just his his way of living in the world. People, most people at least, understand and respect the integrity of his faith. And and we're in a time of great disillusionment with religion in America. Mm-hmm. And he's somebody who who I think people respect as an actual Christian. And I think that's quite a legacy. Mm. You know, I'm wondering what role you think. Uh, religion should play in politics, or or should it? I think that this conversation, I know that this conversation goes back to the very beginnings of our country, and I think a couple basic decisions were made that we should reaffirm. One is that religion does not need to be an enemy of democracy or a threat to good, healthy politics. Um, religion can shape people of sound character who who follow the laws and who make a good contribution to their communities, who have a moral compass. And we, in fact, uh, I think we need to reaffirm that that there will never be enough police officers or laws to manage people who are morally out of control. So we need we need forces that make people want to be good people and live right. And there is no force more powerful than religion for that. But when religion turns toxic, when it's about exclusion or racism or patriarchy or xenophobia, or or when it is no longer committed to democracy and wants to undermine it, then religion in those expressions is actually a threat to politics, um, to healthy politics. Mm-hmm. And so it's about what kind of religion is out there. And that 
is something that is negotiated and developed day by day, week by week in every church and in the heart of every religious person. Reverend Dr. David Gushy is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University, and he's also the author of a few books, including After Evangelicalism. Thank you so much. Great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Later in the show, we're going to listen back to a fun moment with President Carter that involves peanuts. Now I want to take you to Hog Hummock. Officials in coastal Georgia's McIntosh County have voted earlier this month to rezone the historic Sapelo Island settlement of Hog Hummock, one of the nation's last intact communities of Gullah Geechee descendants of enslaved West Africans who worked island plantations along the Atlantic Ocean. GPB's Benjamin Payne has been reporting on the story from Savannah, and I spoke with him earlier about what's happening there. So Hog Hummock is a neighborhood basically on Saplo Island. Saplo is about an hour's drive south of Savannah. Actually, you can't even get to Saplo Island by car. It's only accessible by boat. Um, and that gets at just how relatively undeveloped Saplo Island is, at least compared to some of coastal Georgia's other barrier islands like St. Simons Island and Tybee Island. Even more importantly, almost all of Saplo is owned by the state of Georgia, as a wildlife preserve. About 95% of it is. The other 5% is Hog Hummock. It's the only privately owned part of the island. Uh, many of the people who own property there are African-American and belong to an ethnic group called Golagichi. Geechee. These are descendants of enslaved West Africans who were forced to work the island plantations of coastal Georgia back in the 17 and 1800s. After the Civil War, some newly emancipated African-Americans were given land on Saplo Island by a wealthy white businessman. But over the years, the black landowners of Saplo Island saw their numbers dwindle owing to a lot of racist practices put in place by politicians and majority white McIntosh County. And so what used to be about 15 Gola Geechee communities on Saplo Island have since been reduced to one. And that one is Hog Hummock. Only a few dozen people uh, currently live there. Oh, just a dozen people live there. Okay. Just so a few dozen. A few dozen. Okay, so now we know the history of Hog Hummock. What is happening there now? I understand that it recently just got rezoned. That's right. Earlier this month, the McIntosh County Board of Commissioners voted to rezone Hog Hummock for the first time in nearly three decades. And what this rezoning does is it more than doubles the maximum allowable size of homes that can be legally built on Hog Hummock. Before this vote, the maximum home size was 1,400 square feet. Now it's 3,000 square feet. Um, according to the county commission, part of the reason they say it needed to be rezoned is because the 1,400 square foot rule was impossible to enforce, basically because of the way it was written. Hopefully I'm not getting too technical here, but it's it's important to explain that the limit was 1,400 square feet of heated and air-conditioned space. And so a lot of outside developers found loopholes in that wording and built homes way bigger than 1,400 square feet. So the county commission is basically saying, well, the cat's out of the bag. Let's limit it to 3,000 square feet of total enclosed space, not just heated and air-conditioned, but total enclosed space, which uh, can be supposedly more well-enforced. Wow. So how has the Gullah Geechee community been reacting to this rezoning? If I had to use one word to describe the reaction, I'd go with appalled. The folks I heard from are vehemently against it, basically saying that the county is giving in to outside developers, not just giving in to them, but actively encouraging more and more outside development that would 
have the effect of pricing out lifelong Golagichi residents because their property taxes will likely skyrocket and not just price out existing Golagichi residents, but also descendants of the island who live elsewhere but want to move to their ancestral land. For example, Yolanda Grosvenor, she is a Saplo descendant who lives in Atlanta right now, but wants to retire on Hog Hummock on land that her father, that her native father owns. Uh, Grosvenor attended the county commission meeting this month in McIntosh County. Uh, after the meeting, I spoke with her outside and asked her for her reaction to the rezoning vote. I'm just flabbergasted. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I know we are upset and I get emotional talking about it because we are descendants of the island and they're making it where we won't be able to come back to the island for our kids, our grandkids. They're taking everything from us. And speaking of kids, I spoke with Peter Campbell. He's a father whose children are descendants of Sapelo Island, but who live on the mainland in McIntosh County. Campbell says his kids go to Sapelo Island every weekend to visit their grandparents who live there. But Campbell's concerned that when his kids grow up and if they want to move to Hog Hummock, that they won't be able to because it'll just be way too expensive. Here's what Campbell told me. We got to get rich. <laughs> That's all I can think about is, is um, if they don't get financially stable, they won't be on Sapelo. You know, got to have the finances because it's going to be expensive. It's just going up. I think a half an acre value probably doubled today. You know, more, it's going to be more sought after. And it's going to encourage people to sell more. And the historic community is going to shrink. And I'll add here that I did not hear from a single person from the Golagichi community who was in support of this new rezoning. And in fact, the McIntosh County Commissioner who represents Sapelo Island, Roger Lotson, he said that he had not received a single email or phone call or message of any kind from his constituents or anyone else from that matter in, in support of the rezoning. Lotson and one other commissioner voted against the rezoning, but three others voted in favor, and so it passed. So what is next? Is this a done deal now? Not necessarily, um, and that's because there is the potential for a lawsuit or lawsuits to be filed. There's certainly precedent for litigation on Sapelo Island. About 10 years ago, some property owners on Hog Hummock sued McIntosh County in federal court, claiming that the county was failing to provide adequate services to the island, things like emergency response and road repairs. And that case was settled just last year. And as a result, the county agreed to improve those public services as well as put a freeze on some property tax assessments for a few years. So I bring this up uh, to show that there is precedent for Hog Hummock to fight back through the legal system. Um, perhaps even more importantly, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, a very prominent civil rights organization, they've been throwing their weight around on this issue of rezoning. Uh, two, of their, two of their attorneys actually attended a public meeting in McIntosh County about it, and they criticized the county's rezoning process as unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment's guarantees of due process and equal protection. Uh, among other things, the SPLC said that residents of the island weren't given adequate opportunity to give their feedback on the rezoning proposal. I'll also note that McIntosh County violated Georgia's open meetings law a number of times throughout this rezoning process. For example, um, at that public meeting I just mentioned where the SPLC spoke, the county sheriff prohibited the media, including myself, from bringing recording equipment to the meeting. The county actually prohibited everyone from doing so. And that violates Georgia's open meetings law, which very clearly states that the public has the right to record public meetings. 
Um, and later on at the commission meeting where the vote was actually held, the sheriff allowed media to bring in their cell phones, but no one else from the public was allowed to do so, which, again, is a violation of the open meetings law since it gives everyone, not just reporters like myself, the right to record public meetings. Mm, that is so important to mention. Benjamin Payne, you are our GPB uh, Savannah reporter. Thank you so much for bringing us the story, and I'm sure you'll keep us updated. Thanks for having me, Leah. I really appreciate it. Are you from the South? Do you sound like it? According to a new study, the South is losing its Southern accent. We're going to take a closer look at that coming up on Georgian Play. It's Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. A collaborative study between the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech has found that the classic Southern accent is undergoing some rapid change in Georgia. It's fading. Today's college students don't sound like their parents did. So what is behind that shift? Joining us to talk about the research is John Forrest, Assistant Professor of Linguistics at UGA. Hi, John. Hi. Hi. So why did you all decide even to do a study on this? That's a good question. Um, so there's been some work on changes in dialects across the United States, um, and we found that there are a lot of shifts in other urban areas and things like that. And if you just walk around Georgia and you listen to people who are of different ages, you're going to be able to tell that people are not quite talking the same way. Um, so you, you sort of notice it anecdotally, and we wanted to measure more scientifically, linguistically, what exactly was going on with that. Wow. So how was the study conducted? What'd you do? So what we did is we brought in um, both pre-recorded data from a long time ago, people who were recorded, who were born anywhere from like 1890 to 1940, old like archival recordings, plus new recordings that we did um, with younger college students, um, people who are residents of Georgia in the greater metro Atlanta area. Um, but basically what we do is we sit down with you, we have a little interview, we just talk about stuff, your life, and then from that we can get a recording um, and we can take that and measure the acoustics of that. So basically we can take the sound waves, um, analyze them in a way that tells us where in your mouth you're articulating sounds. Um, and we can measure kind of quantifiably exactly what's different between uh, between your pronunciations. Okay. I know you, you focused on vowels. Is that right? Certain vowels? Correct. Yeah. Um, so in like the classic Southern accent, probably the thing that people think about the most mm -hmm. um, is the vowel I in a word like prize. Um, so the, the Southern accent is going to say something like prize. Um, but what we would say in a more mainstream U.S. accent would be something like prize, like I say. Uh, um, and that's one of the major ones. Another one is the vowel in face, um, the word face. In the South, that might become more something, uh, something more like face. Um, my dad has that sort of accent, but I don't. And I'm from the South, too. So. Oh, wow. You don't even sound like you're from the South. See? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People, my students don't normally guess that either. Yeah. Where are you from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what did you all find with the study? Because you don't even sound like your father, you were saying. Not at all. Mm -hmm. um, and we find this a lot with linguistic change. Mm -hmm. um, so people change a lot over generations. Um, so we sort of took a generational take on this. Um, so you may have heard stuff like baby boomers or Gen X or whatever. Um, so we split people into different generations, all the way back to like the silent generation, um, greatest generation, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we looked generationally at the Southern accent. Um, what we did find is that for baby boomers, that's where you really see the highest peak of Southern accent features. Um, so when you think of that canonical Southern accent, people of that age, those are the people that are gonna have the most of that. Um, and then we see a big drop off for Gen X. Um, and by like people who are Gen Z, like current college students, stuff like that, for most of them, it's nearly gone. Hmm. So why are people speaking with less of a, a Southern draw? Is it, you know, is it migration? Is it stigma? Is it, it, is it hearing uh, different people talk and just kind of, you know, transitioning to how they speak? What's happening? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, there's sort of the structural take and the sort of social take at the same time, which I think you're sort of hinting at. Um, some of it is demographics and migration, right? So uh, immediately post-war, the South started to grow a lot more. Um, historically, it didn't grow all that fast. Around the 60s and 70s is when you started seeing Southern cities really explode, um, and Atlanta's still growing. People talk about that all the time. Um, so this huge amount of growth is bringing in people from other people of the United States. So when you're growing up, uh, you have lots of different accents around you if you have people moving in from different places. Um, so when you're growing up, you have options of how to talk. Um, so when you have all that contact and difference, that's gonna lead to maybe some dialect change. And the other component really is social. Um, because we have certain feelings about that traditional Southern accent. Um, when I do interviews with people and ask about the Southern accent, the first thing they often tell me is if I ask them, hey, how do people think of the Southern accent? They'll tell me, well, they think it sounds slow or uneducated or something like that. Um, and when you're growing up, you learn and pay attention to these things. Whether you're thinking about it or not, you learn that like certain people sound away and they're kind of treated away and people like maybe in middle school, high school, you're, you know, teasing each other about things and you sort of learn like, oh, these are the things that mean certain things in my community. Um, and if you know that that's how these things are being treated, that's kind of a pressure to maybe change how you want to sound when you're an adult. Um, and when we're in high school, middle school, that's when we're really kind of deciding who we're going to be linguistically, just like we do socially. Um, so that might be when you're picking these features around you that you might want to orient towards. Yeah. When you go home to North Carolina, I'm curious, do you uh, ever find yourself slipping into a Southern accent? Did you ever have one? <sighs> Did I ever have one? That's a great <laughs> question. Uh, I should ask my mom. Right. Um, but uh, like for my family directly, mm -hmm. my dad's the only one that really has much of a Southern accent. And I don't know that I would put it on with them, mm -hmm. but I definitely do kind of switch back and forth depending on who I'm talking to. It's actually my wife's family more. When I go visit them in Georgia, I feel that coming out more because more of them have one. 
Um, so I feel more of like, a, hey, you know, maybe I want to fit in and it'll come out a little more there. If I listen to her on the phone with her family, too, you, it, I can tell she's talking to her grandmother because <laughs> it'll come out right just basically immediately. <laughs> right, right, right. So do you think it's possible one day that the South won't have a sound at all? It won't sound Southern at all? That's a great question. Um, what we would say probably, uh, how I describe it isn't necessarily that there isn't a Southern accent now. Mm -hmm. It's just changing what that means. Um, so the, I keep saying traditional Southern accent because we have this idea of how the South should sound. Mm -hmm. But my accent is a Southern accent because I'm from the South. Um, and so sort of descriptively, definitionally, like the South may come to have certain things associated with it that we're not used to, but that's fine. Um, but it may be less regionally distinct in ways we pick up on than other places. So we may see more um, connection to other urban areas on the East Coast or something like that, where there's less of a huge difference between what we might hear in Atlanta versus what we might hear in D.C. or Philadelphia or something like that. Uh, yeah. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. And um, we appreciate you so much for coming on and talking about it. John Forrest is Assistant Professor of Linguistics at UGA's Franklin College of Arts and Sciences Department of Linguistics. Thank you so much, John. Thanks. All right, Chuck. So um, as you just heard, you know, we, we've been looking, taking a closer look at this collaborative study uh, between the University of Georgia and Georgia Tech that found that the Southern accent is dying generation to generation. And so I want to talk to you about that as a Southerner uh, with a strong accent. What do you think about when you hear this? What did you think? Is this, I mean, is this just troubling? Well, my instant reaction to it was that that I understand how such data could be collected, mm -hmm. but to draw the conclusion that the Southern accent is dying seemed like a little bit of an overstatement to me. Mm. I'd say it's waning, not dying. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah, because I think that, you know, a lot of the people, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see what the rural urban breakdown was among the, the people who who were part of the the data set you know mm -hmm. because uh you know I, I i think kids who grow up in in rural areas are probably keeping more of their accent uh, more of the southern accent than, than kids who grow up in urban areas now i know it's 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 waning among among everybody Mm -hmm. But, you know, the interesting thing about it is that it's, in some ways, it's becoming even more treasured by people. Oh, more treasured. Okay. And in what way? Well, I, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I've been, I've been following for several years, for probably a decade now, the work of a linguistics professor at uh, North Carolina State University named mm -hmm. Walt Wolfram. And... Dr. Wolfram's work uh, has his entire career been about documenting the different dialects of the Southern accent, particularly mm -hmm. focused in North Carolina. 
and he he has run for many years a a project in in the Department of, of English there uh, called the North Carolina Linguistics and Life Project, mm-hmm. and uh, he's been documenting all these these uh, these you know how the accent is differently manifested by different groups of people. Uh, and not long ago, uh, uh, one of the, the master students there did some research and found that the use of the word y'all mm-hmm. is rapidly expanding. <laughs> and he, he came up with a really cute name for this. He calls it the sprawl of y'all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I mean, I... Like when I first moved to New York City when I was fresh out of college, you know, I mm-hmm. got mocked for my accent a whole bunch. Uh, but you know, and and I got and I got made fun of for using the word y'all. Mm-hmm. But I used to argue that that y'all was the missing and much needed second person pronoun in the English language. Mm-hmm. Because if if I'm talking to you, Leah. I say you. Mm-hmm. If I use proper English and I talk to you and a group of your friends, I'm also supposed to say you. Mm-hmm. We don't have a unique word for the second person pronoun, mm-hmm. sort of the second person plural pronoun. So I, I, you know, y'all is the right word. And now, like it's it's catching on because uh, younger people are 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 using it because it fits into like the more gender neutral conversations we have about people now. Yes. And because, uh, and just because it's a, a cool word, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that, that you hear an awful lot these days is, you know, people as a sort of political statement will say, y'all means all. Oh, man. You know, growing up, my grandmother, I grew up in the Northeast, but she would not let us say y'all. We had to say you all. Wow. Okay. Now, so did you grow up in, in, in a city in the Northeast? Yes. Yes. Uh, not in Georgia. Great. I grew up in New York. In New York. Okay. Now, I, yeah. My whole adult life is I've lived either in Atlanta or in New York City, in New mm-hmm. York City for two stretches. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm, I'm guessing that perhaps your grandmother had some Southern roots. She did. Yeah. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, I can see that, you know, mm-hmm. it's like because the, the language uh, or the, and the accent stigmatizes people. I mean, I used to get questions like, uh, you know, are your parents moonshiners? <laughs> yes, yes. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with and, my grandmother, and, and I get this now as an adult, uh, she wanted us African-American children to yes. grow up and be able to speak among white folks and be respected or at least be you know, somewhat accepted in the space. So if we talk, if we said y'all or we, if we used any kind of, uh, you know, street vernacular, um, we would potentially not, we would be looked down on. It was, we would be stereotyped and it was right. already tough enough being African-American entering into white spaces. So we are going to speak proper. Well, you know, and, and that motivation is absolutely 
understandable mm -hmm. because you know it's it it was all about achievement mm -hmm. and and you know advancing yourself in this life. So, mm -hmm. you know, who could argue with a motivation like that? Right. So you know, when I, I, I just I, I still don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. Right. That's what I'm getting at. Is uh, is is there some? Um, there is no, there's no reason to be ashamed of the Southern accent. You're, you do a uh, podcast, and I've worked in radio my entire adult career. I love the sound of voices and accents, you know, not just the Southern ones, but uh, right. New York has an accent, and I can hear Several it. accents. Right, several, right. <laughs> Chicago, you can go to. L.A., you can hear all of these accents. Um, and I'm wondering if you feel the same way about the beauty of accents, and it kind of uh, paints a picture of our American culture. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, my work for the last 10 years is focused exclusively on the South, right? Mm -hmm. But there's not one Southern accent. There are many, just, you know, just like there are, uh, you know, like different boroughs and different parts of boroughs of New York mm -hmm. City have different accents, right? Right. And, you know, and I, I, I expect those are kind of fading away, too, for some of the same reasons that were found in this study. But I, I think that, you know, I, just, I love being able to, to listen to people and, and, like, I've gotten where, like, I can hear. I always recognize an Appalachian accent mm. uh, and part of that's because I'm you know I, I grew up up in the mountains in North Georgia uh, and my roots are in, in you know southern Appalachia but I you know can I hear the difference between that and, and a South Georgia accent oh. absolutely mm -hmm. you know and and like for that in particular the best thing to look at is how the letter R is voiced. You mm -hmm. know, I say Georgia with a hard R. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in South Georgia say Georgia. <laughs> right? Yes. yes. I mean, you can hear that in President Carter's accent, who was from yep. South Georgia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, and, and I can hear... I, I, and as I've talked to all these different people around the South, right, I, I can hear sort of the northern Appalachia accent when I talk to people like from Virginia and West Virginia. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Tidewater country of Virginia has a distinct accent. Uh, you know, the low country in the Carolinas has a distinct accent, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and there are all these, you know, different variations in black dialect. You know, I spent some time... On, on Dolfusky uh, mm -hmm. Island, and, uh, you know, that's that's one of the seats of the Gullah Geechee cult culture. Oh, yeah. And that accent is, you know, totally distinct. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. I think it's great. I think that I can... I, there's something that appeals to me about thinking that I can hear where somebody is from. Yes. Yes. It's art. It's art. I love it. <laughs> it is. It mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we have been talking with Chuck Reese of Salvation South about the Southern accent. And we thank you so much, Chuck.
I'm so glad to be with you, Leah. And uh, as for your listeners, I I hope all y'all enjoyed this conversation. (laughs) Thank you. It feels like we have just come through the summer of labor strikes, from Amazon to a near catastrophic UPS strike that didn't happen, to Hollywood coming to a standstill with a writer's strike. There has been a breakthrough, though, with the Writers Guild of America, who have agreed to end their strike. We're going to talk about that just ahead on Georgia in Play. Welcome back to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. The Writers Guild of America has ended one of the longest strikes in Hollywood's history. The strike lasted 146 days with thousands of people out of work. The last strike of 1988, that lasted 154 days. The proposed three-year contract, which will have to be ratified by over 11,000 members, would do things like boost pay rates and residual payments for streaming shows, and impose new rules surrounding the use of artificial intelligence. Joining us to talk more about all of this is Lisa Respers France. She is the senior entertainment writer for CNN Digital in Atlanta. Hi, Lisa. Hello. So, uh, first, let's talk about the Writers Guild. Did they get what was needed to protect their livelihood? I think they believe so. I think that they feel like they've gotten as close to what they have really, really wanted um, than what was being presented to them earlier. It has been a long strike, pointed out over five months. But I think that people miscalculated, uh, especially the um, executive who was quoted as saying anonymously to just, you know, kind of bring folks to their knees and make it so that they become so economically uncomfortable that they would give in to anything. I think, if anything, that fueled the fire for writers and actors, and they doubled down and became even more determined to make sure that they can make a living out of their art. Mm. So how long until they will go back to work, until we see them go back to work? Well, if this gets ratified, you will see things like talk shows be able to go back on air very quickly. But we do have to keep in mind that the SAG after strike is still happening. So you can have writers all day, but if you don't have any actors who are working, if they're still striking, then your favorite TV shows and movies are not going to be able to go back into production. So consequently, we're we're not there yet. I know lots of people are anxious for it to all be done and settled, as all are the actors. I've interviewed quite a few actors and writers, and everybody just wants to get back to work, but they want to be paid fairly, and they also want to be protected from new technology like artificial intelligence to make sure that studios and streaming services aren't able to make money off of their work and art, and they get cut out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, during the strike, we saw a lot of um, maybe some uh, missteps by people like Drew Barrymore, uh, who wanted to bring her people back to, to work to, you know, get them paid, but uh, then, you know, backtracked on, on doing all of that. Um, what do you make of that? Did, that? did that hurt her? I think it did. I think one of the problems is, and I wrote about this, is when you have celebrities who come out and make an apology especially when they're actors, sometimes people think that they're acting. So in the case of Drew, because she had 
pulled out of an MTV award show because of the strike, but then said, I'm going to own this this decision to bring my show back. People said, well, why did you pull out of MTV? But for your show, you're willing to go back and potentially harm the strike. This is what people were worried about. They wanted everybody to stand in solidarity and lockstep with what they were doing. So I think a lot of people felt betrayed by Drew's decision to bring her show back, even though she was not the the only show. I mean, she, once there was backlash, mm -hmm. she then came on and did a very emotional video, which received even more backlash because some people thought that she wasn't being genuine with her apology. And so I think it was it was harmful to her image because so many people had so much love for Drew Barrymore. Now, do I think this is going to end her career or her show? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. I also think that people don't factor in what we don't know about behind the scenes. We don't know, for instance, if Drew Barrymore's show had any type of deals with like, you know, local TV stations and things like that, that they had to honor. Mm -hmm. All that the general public knew was that the strike is happening. Drew Barrymore's coming back anyway. And people got up in arms about that. So it's, it's, it's very difficult because what we're seeing with the public in strikes in general, it's not just Hollywood, but we're seeing the public really leaning into this feeling of, we need to make sure that employees feel empowered because we're seeing so much of the people at the top, the CEOs and the executives making all this money and it's not trickling down. And when we're in the type of economy that we're in right now with inflation, people really feel that. I mean, they may never themselves go on a TV show or a movie, but when an actor holds up a residuals check for 38 cents, that really strikes home to someone who may be struggling right now to decide if they're going to buy groceries or, you know, uh, pay a bill. So I feel like people have really, really taken to heart what's happening with these strikes. And, and that's really been a smart move on the actors and the writers part in making the rest of America understand that this isn't just about us. This is also about you. This is about fighting for the rights of anyone who works for someone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you make that point about a 38-cent residual check, which can happen and does happen. I think there's a misconception uh, among a lot of the public that uh, people in Hollywood are rich. You know, even these these writers, they are rich, and they that's just simply not the case, is it? Absolutely not. I talked to several people in the industry, um, one person in particular who said she feels like she's middle class in terms of acting because she's been fairly successful. But at the same time, she is not by any means on, like, say, an Angelina Jolie's level or, you know, uh, someone like a Brad Pitt, even though I know they're not together anymore. But those are two names that, that come <laughs> to mind and people who make really, really big money. The 98 percent of the people and, you know, that's a that's probably you know, a number that I heard somewhere years ago, but I can tell you the vast majority of people in SAG-AFTRA don't make nearly as much money as the people who are at the top. But because those people are such big celebrities, those are people that we usually associate with Hollywood. And even when it comes to writers, we think about a Shonda Rhimes or someone like that who has this whole entire empire. But your average writer and your average actor is not making a ton of money. They're not millionaires. And even when you saw like somebody like a, a you know one of the stars of Breaking Bad who shared his residual checks on social media, we see that these people are, are, are getting paid much less money for stream, you know, I'm sorry, not for stream, but for, for um, residuals than one would even imagine. So even the people at the top 
who are making a lot of money, when it comes down to the money that they're getting paid for the work they already did, it's it's not what people think. Yeah, yeah. So as you know, uh, Georgia is known as the Hollywood of the South and certainly even Black Hollywood as well. You know, Tyler Perry Studios has this major uh, footprint in the, in the city of Atlanta uh, or in Atlanta, the Atlanta area. Um, has this impacted Georgians, this strike? Majorly it's impacted. I mean, we're talking a multi-billion dollar industry here in Georgia, and it's impacting not just the performers. It's impacting everyone from the mom and pop store who might be up the street from a studio who depended on people coming in on their lunch breaks to makeup artists, to the people who press the costumes. I mean, folks that you wouldn't even think about who are right here in our own backyard were deeply affected because if work stops for the actors and for the writers, it stops for everyone. So all the productions got shut down. So you're talking catering, you're talking somebody who may be a florist that provided floral arrangements for scenes. It affected everyone. I had neighbors personally, I live in East Atlanta, I had neighbors who were jumping on our social media pages saying, hey, you know, if you can, if you need any help, if you need me to mow lawns, like Mm -hmm. people were starting to get pretty desperate because this thing has been dragging on for so long. So it's been a huge impact in terms of Georgia and its economy. And it's quite sad when you think about how hard Georgia has worked to become the Hollywood of the South, giving so many tax breaks to lure these productions here. So when the work stops, it deeply affects everyone. Mm. So the strike, along uh, with the Screen Actors uh, strike, that has had a financial impact on Hollywood and in Georgia. All the TV series have halted, the films as well. Um, We're not seeing the debut of of all of these fall TV series and movies until both strikes are settled. Isn't that, that's right, right? Both of those have to really be settled. Right. If it's not in the can already, you're not going to see it. And it might also not feel very visible to you, even if it's something that's already been shot and they can air, because none of the celebrities or none of the performers who are involved in it, if they're actors, they cannot uh, participate in promoting their films or their TV shows. So it could be that, yes, a TV show that was filmed last year is going to be premiering, but you won't get the same you know, feeling of it, feeling like, oh, this great show is coming on if you don't have anybody there who can promote it. I mean, the writers now would be able to promote it if, if this contract gets ratified, but people really look for the actors to be the voice to really let folks know and get out there on social media and promote their projects. And if SAG-AFTRA doesn't settle their strike, that's not going to be happening. Mm. So where are we with the actors who walked out in support of the writers and how uh, does that benefit them to do that? Well, I think the actors that I've talked to, those um, performers that I've been in contact with, are feeling a little bit more hopeful now because the writers strike looks to be coming to an end. Mm -hmm. So they're hopeful that they'll be able to keep that same energy going. I know um, one person I talked to in particular said that they've been encouraging their writer friends to come down to the strike line for SAG-AFTRA to just kind of talk to people and say, hey, this is this is kind of how we do it, how we did it. It's it's not that these conversations haven't been happening, but it's been like kind of like share share your secrets with us of how you were able to get the studios and the streamers to be able to a come to the table, but b really take you seriously and be able to end the strike because they want to get back to work. It, again, you know I can't hammer this 
enough. If people aren't working, people aren't making money. Mm -hmm. And so they want it. But at the same time, they want not just the respect, but the protections that they're calling for with the contracts that they're seeking out. So I think for SAG-AFTRA, what happens now is they've got to get to the table. They've got to start having those conversations. Um, there, there was a little bit of saltiness from what I heard from my sources mm -hmm. uh, because the weekend right before the writer's strike came to a possible end, there was all this publicity about the streamers and the studio saying that they had made their last and final and best offer, which some people felt like was a little bit of strong arming. So I think that the actors... Uh, who are being led by Fran Drescher, who has been fiery mm -hmm. and has been on it in terms of calling people out. I think they feel like they are in a position of strength right now um, and in, also in a position of the timing being right, that the the hope is that the streamers and the studio executives will feel like, you know what, we've, we've got the writer's portion wrapped up. Let's go ahead and make the deal that needs to be made for these actors. Mm. Okay. Now, in other news, you know Georgia, of course, is is uh, big in film, but we are also well known in terms of music. And there is news that Usher is going to perform at the halftime show during the upcoming Super Bowl. And I'm wondering, what do you think about that? What he brings to the stage? What do you bring to it? What, you know, and there are a lot of people that don't know about Usher like that. How's that possible? I is know. It, so is this the part? Is this the part where I go, yeah, yeah, yeah? <laughs> <to> quote Usher. <laughs> I feel like I should. I mean, Usher has been in the industry since he was a child. Mm -hmm. He has hits after hits after hits. And for those of us who either didn't have the coins or the time or the opportunity to get to Las Vegas mm -hmm. to see his incredible show, his residency there. The Super Bowl halftime show is going to be everything. Not only does he have incredible hits, but he has so many collaborators. I mean, he's collaborated with everybody from Beyonce to, you know, I mean, I could I could go on and on. I don't want to start naming people because then I'll forget somebody and somebody will get mad and, and I don't want people at me on social media. But I will say that I feel like the Usher halftime show is going to be one of the most eagerly awaited ones because not only does the man sing like an angel, he can dance. He is a full performer. He's the triple threat. He can do it all. And I think he's going to put on such an incredible production and he's going to do Atlanta and do Georgia proud. I'm not even worried about that. I think, yeah, I think it's going to be so awesome. And I love, he was on CBS mornings recently and he said that it's just been a dream of his to do this and that his, he, he wished that his grandmother and his nanny had been allowed to see it, but that they would have the best seat in the house up in heaven mm -hmm. watching him. So you know, he just spoke as if this was divinely appointed. And I just feel like that's going to cause him to just come and perform like full out. I feel like he's going to give this performance his all. And he's already said he wants to give the people one of the best halftime shows they've ever seen. He mentioned Prince's halftime show, Beyonce's mm -hmm. halftime show, Michael Jackson's halftime show. And in a lot of ways, I feel like Usher is a combination in some ways of those three performers with mm -hmm. the dance moves, with the mystique with the way he always gives his all for his fans and with the way that he, that his fans just love him all out. So, you know, I, I, I personally am looking forward to the little football game that's going to be played <laughs> in the midst of your concert. <laughs> okay. Same, same. <laughs> all right. Lisa Respers France is the senior entertainment writer for CNN digital in Atlanta. Thank you so much for spending time with us, Lisa. Thank you for having me. This was a blast.
All right, while you continue dancing, let me tell you this. Just ahead, we're going to continue celebrating President Carter's 99th birthday with a fun moment from the 1970s. That's ahead on Georgia in Play. This weekend, Georgia's beloved son, former governor and former president Jimmy Carter turns 99 years old. His birthday is October 1st. Carter is known for many things, his love of the Lord, building homes and service work, and peanuts. He also loves music. In an interview with the New York Times many years ago, he said that he listened to jazz from a young age. He called it an art form that helped break down racial barriers. We could use some of that today. So, in honor of President Carter, we end today's show with a throwback memory. This is President Jimmy Carter performing with Dizzy Gillespie's band at the White House during a White House jazz concert in 1978. The song is called Salt Peanuts. Salt Peanuts, Salt Peanuts. Salt Peanuts, Salt Peanuts. That video was recorded by the BBC. And that's our show for today. Send us a note to askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen at gpb.org and download the show on the GPB app. Our producers are Natalie Mendenhall and Chase McGee. Special thanks to Mary Lynn Ryan, our Vice President of News. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Would you like to go on the road with us? <laughs> I might have to after the night. <laughs>